so many people hate their own response to the following question. So what does your company actually do? Because in this moment, my friend, you have three options, okay? Number one, pitch slap your prospect. Number two, fumble your way through a long-winded response. And number three, deliver a punchy elevator story that sparks intrigue. Now, if you're nodding your head at number three, but you're like, hold up, I don't even know where to begin, then hey, don't worry. I've got your back. All right, head on down to www.theraviregiani.com forward slash your elevator story to unlock your very own free elevator story script, template, and guide. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. Rihanna, Serena Williams, Tom Brady, and JT, aka my crush, I suppose is the best way to put it, Justin Timberlake. Now, all of these individuals have one thing in common, man. They have the, I suppose, trait and desire for engaging in a relentless practice. No shortcuts. You know what I'm saying, man? Just a focus on mastering the right behaviors through relentless, rather, repetition. And in July 2021, inspired by athletes, performers, and musicians, two individuals came together to form a training company designed to help sales pros become masters at their craft through the power of practice. And that company is called The Practice Lab. And those people are Jonathan Mahan and Jordana Zeldin. And today I pinned them down, man, to specifically talk to us about how to sell more in a recession through the power of practice. Welcome, friends. What's good? Hello, hello. Good to be here, man. Thanks for having us on. You told me how to say your surname properly in the green room. Did I butcher it or did I do it justice? You tell me. <laughs> uh, the way I pronounce it is Mayhan, but in your defense, there's a lot of things you can do with A's, right? A's are a very versatile vowels, so <laughs> there's no way you could have guessed Damn it, man. That is the word. Jonathan Mayhan. Thank you, brother. And listen, man, you know, one thing that I think not many people know about you is, dude, you got three kids. Now, listen, as a dad, who's about five months into his journey, I'm feeling the pain. So you've got my pain times three. So what have I got to expect over the next seven months before my daughter hits one year old? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, I will say in, in my experience, it usually gets more and more fun with time. So over the next seven months, it's going to go from like fun to like really fun to, oh my God, this kid's the funnest thing ever. To me, it seemed like the fun really peaked at two, right? Two was like that beautiful zone of like autonomy, independence, personality, but not quite like, you know, I don't know, uh, re rebellion and conflict and misbehaving and any of that stuff yet, right? So two is like my, my favorite age personally. But uh, yeah, you, you got a lot of fun stuff ahead. That's beautiful, man. And how old are the kids, by the way? So I have seven, four, and one at the moment. One? Oh, snap. Okay. Seven, four, and one. So you, you're you literally only with a with the littlest one. You're only a few steps ahead of me, man. So your sleepless nights were real about six months ago. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We, we've just she just started sleeping through the night for us, and and now is at that age where she can like open doors and push chairs around to climb up on counters, and everything just got a lot more complicated. <laughs> well, I tell you what. Speaking of complicated, let's talk about Jordana, right? So she was studying in Norwich, and she wanted to go into theatre, and then suddenly she got, <laughs> I suppose, enrolled into the world of sales for an art tech company. And what I found fascinating about your story was you kind of felt yucky in your words doing it at the beginning meaning sales so when did things change for you my friend yeah i mean look sales has a lot of baggage right i think most people when they hear salesperson think about like the used car guy right so there was like an inner conflict for a number of years until we got ahead of sales who arrived on the scene at our art tech startup we hadn't had any experienced sales leaders there before And he basically helped us all to see that the person that we are outside of our life in sales is the person who belongs showing up in our life in sales. And I started to give myself permission to be the same person in all facets of my life. And I dropped that yucky used car salesman thing that wasn't mine to begin with and really found that when I committed to bringing myself to my sales conversations, committed to building relationships and authentically being curious and investigating what was going on for my prospects, things really started to take off. But once I figured out how to do the selling thing myself, I got really excited about coaching and developing other people on the team. And I found myself feeling even more excited by their wins you know, than, than my own and uh, realized I wanted to to, to be a coach full time. Well, do you ever get the bug? Like, as in people always say, once you have, well, actually, does the bug ever make you want to go back? Meaning when people enter the world of performing on any stage, they always get bitten by the performance bug, right? So there's a part of you ever go, you know what? I might just go back and just do like one more, one more show. Do you, do you ever get that feeling or is that world behind you now? Well, so it's funny. So in my in my life in the theater, it was really du- directing that I was doing, which was a so you know early on it was acting, but but directing it's the same muscle. It's like supporting people mm-hmm. to find their authentic voices and bring themselves, you know, to to bring conversation and and relationship to life, right? So, uh, but what's funny is that you know now that Jonathan and I have the practice lab, the the bug that I'm feeling excited about is selling again, right? Because we're not only coaching and training people how to, to to sell more effectively, but we're also doing it ourselves. And there's something so amazing and humbling actually about knowing in my head how to do it effectively, knowing it so well that I can teach it. But then sometimes I find myself my own conversations, my own sales conversations, you know, a little rusty or not taking my own advice. So I really, you know, Jonathan and I are both kind of avatars of the people that we're coaching and training because we're trainers and, and we're also sellers as well very meta isn't it it's very very meta it's, it's the same same with me right you know with storytelling and training b2b sales reps and teams it's, it's the same thing so i feel you i feel you now i don't know what the both of you think about this but i think one of the systemic problems with one and done training is the lack of focusing on mastery and doing the reps afterwards right you can have this big sko ton of money spent on it and then pff, there's no follow-up afterwards so i know that both of you talk about the difference, the clear difference between training and practice. So Jonathan, tell me a little bit about the distinction between the two in your eyes. Yeah, I mean, I think the distinction becomes obvious when you think about you know, other disciplines that we're all familiar with, right? 
imagine to yourself. So we just had the Super Bowl here in the U.S. just yesterday, right? So imagine those Super Bowl teams, you know, getting uh, getting spoken to, you know, getting, hiring a speaker to come talk to their team about like different plays to run and better ways to run an offensive drive. And then that being it. And then they show up the next week, the Super Bowl, and they try to implement what they just heard last week from a speaker. It's laughable, right? Absolutely laughable. That team is going to take what they learned from that speaker and spend the entire week practicing it, drilling it, rehearsing it until it becomes second nature to them so that they can show up and you know perform at their best. So same with any discipline, right? You know, a gymnastics team, again, is not just going to watch YouTube videos on how to perfect their performance. They're going to practice it. Comedians aren't just going to listen to Jerry Seinfeld talk on a podcast about comedic timing and then just roll into their Netflix special and try to implement what he taught them. No other discipline out there is going to take theory and say, yeah, okay, I think I got that, and then just go do it come performance time. It's crucial that you take the space in the middle for practice, for rehearsal, for role play. There's a lot of different ways of doing this, but you got to give yourself that space to take the theory and try implementing it into your actual behaviors, your actual talk tracks, your actual conversations. And you got to do this in a way that, you know, is a safe environment, right? For you to practice things where you can make mistakes and fail. You got to do this in an environment where you can get feedback and make corrections as you go. But, you know, regardless of what the practice looks like, and again, we can talk more about, you know, how to structure practice in a bit, but regardless of what that practice looks like, every other discipline in the world recognizes that there's a middle step between learning the theory and doing it really well come performance time. And that middle step is practice. So what we're doing at the practice side really isn't that revolutionary. It's just taking something that every other discipline has been doing for centuries and pulling it into the world of sales. I feel you, man. I feel you. And I also think that in a world obsessed with instant gratification, I actually feel like the difference between people who will, I suppose, the people who really succeed over the next few years in whatever, whatever industry, whatever their medium is, it will be their obsession with practice. Because I think people just want to do it once and they go, oh, I'm not good at it. Psh, that's it. Leave it in the bin. And I think where well, whether it's social media or whatever shifted in the world, I think the art of practice is um, truly what's going to help people stand out. So, Jordana, for you, my friend, when it comes to the current climate, right? You know, I don't know what the both of you think, but every conversation I'm having right now, people are talking about efficiency and profitability. So if you've got an individual seller who knows, hey, listen, I should be practicing, right? I should be practicing, but in the back of their mind, they're worried about layoffs. In the back of their mind, they're worried about getting hit with that pip. How can they engage in effective practice with all of the noise going on in the external world? Yeah, it's so interesting. And actually, Jonathan and I, though, of course, we're not excited about what's happening economically, feel really excited to be evangelizing practice at this moment in the economy because we're in a moment where every opportunity is more precious than ever before, right? There have been a lot of layoffs so that the people that you do have on your team need to be as skillful as they can possibly be, right? There's not the kind of budgets in place that there were to bring splashy trainers to talk at you for an hour with a fancy slide deck and to drop 20K for that hour, right? So people need to be really lean and really effective. And the great thing about practice is it's free not entirely complicated and it doesn't take a lot of time. I mean, these sales teams that have cultures of practice are just doing like quick little drills here and there, right? In their team meetings or individual sellers, like the one that you're talking about. If there's any other seller who is hungry to experience and to grow through practice, you can literally set up 10 minutes, right? In a one-on-one 
and just get some reps in, right? And Jonathan and I will talk about, you know, how to most effectively structure practice. But I think in this moment, maybe more than moments that feel less pressure filled, practice is a really, really important, essential way to make sure that the things that that you as a, let's say, a sales leader know your team should be doing, that they're act- that those behaviors are actually showing up on their sales calls. And Jonathan, I feel like that's a really good tee up to talk about some of the various ways that like individual sellers can practice and, and even teams can practice together. Yeah, no, I agree. Go for it, man. Go for it. Jordana's doing that. She was doing the co-hosting with me. She set me up for that. So go, go for it, brother. Hit us with the goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're where I've always started in thinking about practice is to first identify, you know, what are those those key pivotal moments that you want to be really good at? Because it's it's very time consuming to practice a whole demo all at once. And also for various reasons, it's not the most effective way to actually build skill to practice a whole demo all at once, right? Better the way to build skills to zoom in on specific moments or specific behaviors and practice those with high repetition, with immediate feedback and the opportunity to immediately implement feedback. So I think the first step is to identify what are some of those key pivotal moments, right? For a lot of folks, it might be when someone answers a cold call, right? What does that cold call opener sound like? That might be a pivotal moment. For a lot of folks, what comes to mind is like objections. And at the moment someone says an objection, do you freeze and panic and say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll follow up in six months? Or do you take it in stride and do you start a deeper conversation with them to better understand their needs and ultimately give you a chance to maybe overcome that objection? So that's a pivotal moment you can practice, right? But there are others as well. You know, let's say in the discovery conversation, you want to get better at like, you know, that diving deep when people mention surface level pains. You could do a role play with a partner where they talk about a surface level pain and then you come up with some kind of question to help you dig deeper. But it's all about zooming into particular moments that you feel you're a little rusty just practicing those moments over and over again with a partner until you feel like you got some, you know, some real competency and some comfort around that area. So it sounds though, from what the both of you are telling me is it's less about practicing demos, discovery calls and negotiations. It's more about thinking about the most practicable behaviors during any type of sales conversation and really trying to master those. Am I right? I'd say so. Yeah. One of the reasons why most salespeople dislike role play, and I, I was certainly in that camp for most of my career too, is that it doesn't really feel real. You know, it's like, okay, well, this partner of mine who's pretending to be a prospect is never going to act like a real prospect acts. Either they're going to like be obnoxious and be way too difficult, and that's not realistic, or they're just going to hand me softballs the whole time, and I'll feel really competent, I'll feel great. But it's not actually going to help because as soon as I talk to a real prospect, that all falls apart, right? And you, we have to recognize that one of our sellers pretending to be a buyer is always going to behave differently, you know, than a real buyer would. So there's a few different ways of dealing with that. But one of the easiest ways of dealing with that is just by zooming in at particular moments, right? It's not that hard for someone to realistically role play somebody saying the words, I'm sorry, man, we're going to have to hold off. You know, uh, we just got our budget cut, so we can't, we can't do this this year. People can say those words, and then you can practice your response to those words, and it stays pretty realistic. Where it starts to fall apart is, again, where you role-play the entire negotiation, and you negotiate the terms, and you negotiate the price, and like you do the whole back and forth. And it's not all that realistic, because again, someone pretending to be a prospect never seems to act the way a real prospect does. So that's why you zoom into particular moments and particular behaviors and just practice those with a role-play. Cut! Pause or whatever we need to say for me to get your attention. Because before we get back to the show, I have some breaking news. Okay, listen, ladies and gents, feature selling is dead. 
And story selling is alive because if you really want to build trust, stand out and close more deals in a recession, then you need to try something new so you can drive your company to a world of efficiency and profitability. And that's exactly why I've opened up many slots this year for different companies to partner with me for implementing my story selling framework inside of their sales process. Now, the outcomes are all the good stuff. I'm talking about increasing average order value, collapsing time inside of your sales cycle and driving win rates. But more importantly, transforming your team to sell in a way that really focuses on human connection. And hey, that's what I'm all about. So if you're nodding your head right now, then head on down to www.therabbyrajani.com forward slash contact to book your complimentary discovery call to see if there's alignment. And hey, if there is, great. If there's not, that's cool too. I'll see you on the other side. Maybe this is one for Jordana. I love your take on this, but how do you create that intensity so the nervous system learns how to cope in those high stakes scenarios? Meaning if Jonathan and I do a role play right now, I'm like, listen, this is just chill. There's no pressure here. And then suddenly I'm in a high stakes scenario, fight or flight kicks in, my amygdala fires and I'm like, uh, that's our folks. You know what I mean? I can't handle it. So how do you create that level of intensity and simulate a high stress environment in those specific moments, Jordana? How do you do that? That's such an interesting question. And what I would venture to say, at least how we approach it in the practice lab, is that we we don't simulate the intensity. But what we do do is slow the speed of the interaction way down. And I'll share a little bit why and how it relates. But typically in like a, a sales role plan, a sales team, the idea is that like someone's giving you an objection and you are just responding in real time or anytime you're doing a role plan, a sales team, the idea is often just to show how good you are, right? With the, with the approving or judgmental looks of your manager. But what we've found is that the way to build awareness and to kind of, kind of create new neurological pathways in the brain is to slow it way down in service of very deliberately walking through the new steps or the new behavior. So as an example, like for our objection handling framework, what we teach is not upon receiving an objection to immediately respond with a rebuttal, right? Which is actually what most salespeople do because they're defended and prospects are expecting a fight and sellers are maybe armoring up for battle and the whole interaction relationship just risks falling apart if you do that, right? But of course, in the moment, you're feeling like you're being attacked, so you want to respond with a rebuttal, but it it never it's never serves anybody's interest there. So what we do is we teach sellers upon receiving an objection. It's a six-step process, but we'll, we'll just do the first three steps. The first is to take a beat to express gratitude internally and connect with gratitude that your prospect is being honest with you and not just yesing and ghosting you for six months, right? So they're, they're voicing their actual concerns. We encourage sellers to welcome those concerns by literally thanking them, right? Rewarding the behavior. Thanks so much for being transparent. Hey, I know that wasn't easy to share. Really appreciate your being straight with me, right? Then from there, we invite sellers to take a beat to empathize with where the buyer is in their decision-making process. So if the buyer says, you know, the price is too high, you might say something like, thanks so much for sharing that. You know, it makes sense that when you're evaluating a purchase like this, you want to make sure that the price feels right. And then we recommend that sellers ask a question to better understand more about their prospect circumstances, right? So welcome, empathize, understand. Now, I share this this framework as an example, Ravi, because if you, in practice, slow yourself way down, just like when you're learning the steps of a new dance, right? 
and walk yourself very deliberately, muddling through, doubling back, making corrections to get the three steps right in practice, and you get in your reps and you practice in that style over and over again, when things speed up and the pressure is on, right? When your amygdala is firing in a real sales conversation, you will have those new behaviors at the ready because you've built awareness by slowing down your practice. So that's a, that's a kind of roundabout way of saying that we don't try to simulate the intensity of the sales interaction because that's never going to feel real. But instead, we focus on building awareness so that you have the behaviors at the ready when it does feel stressful. Yeah, I'd add to that too that, you know, there's even a, a time and a place probably for trying to introduce that like pressure. Um, in fact, there would be merits if you could find a way to make the practice environment even more stressful than the real environment, there would be merits to that. Once you've already established the skill, once you've already learned, once you've already achieved competency and you're chasing down mastery, again, look at how other disciplines do it. There definitely is a time and a place for doing practice that's harder than the game, right? There's some benefit to that. But that's not where you start. You start by slowing it down, as she said, by doing it one piece at a time, by really doing it well, instead of focusing on doing it fast. And then once you've gotten to the point where you have that foundation, you've done it well, and you've done it over and over again, really well at a slower speed, then if you want, you can start ratcheting up the speed, you can start ratcheting up the pressure, but you don't want to start there. And all too often when a team does those role play, that's where they start, right? They start with game speed. They start with the pressures on because your manager and his boss's boss are watching you, right? Like, and that's not where you build skill, really. That can be helpful in, again, achieving mastery once the core skill is already there. But if you're trying to train someone on a new behavior, that's not how you do it. It's like learning a backflip on concrete. Like, that's not where you learn it. Maybe one day you'll do it there, but that's not where you learn it. So when you're trying to build new skill, train new behaviors, you don't want the pressure. You don't want it to be done at game speed. You don't want it to be as hard as a real environment. You want it to be slower and easier so that folks can really, again, do it right establish those new patterns, dig those new grooves in their brain before you start ratcheting up the difficulty. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I'm, I'm genuinely curious to hear both of your responses to this. So I'm taking it back to theater for a second. So what would happen is we'd do a table read for a script, for example, and Jordana, you're going to be nodding your head like, yeah, I feel you. I know what you're talking about. So we'd do that and then we'd be practicing, for example, over and over again with the script in our hand. Then we'd remove the script. We'd be doing it in low stakes scenarios. And then ultimately we would move to rehearsals and then the actual performance. But what often would happen is some people were great in practice and rehearsals because they had the ability to think clearly and there was no noise. And then sometimes what would happen is they'd get thrown a curveball. For example, somebody would forget their line. Under the lights, under the pressure, they would forget their line because their mind was jacked up. There was, they'd just literally gone blank. And then they didn't know how to maneuver because they hadn't practiced in these high stakes scenarios. So if we take that to sales, how can you then prepare for those moments where you just, you just go blank and practice goes out the window? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think as Jonathan mentioned, you know, there are ways to ratchet up like the speed, for example, of an interaction in like in a practice environment. The issue is just that it's best not to start there. So, you know, like, for example, once you and the team, let's say if you're on a sales team, establish a foundation, again, let's say we'll use this hypothetical framework of welcome, empathize, understand, slowly doubling back and making corrections, then it is so okay to do like a 10 minute game speed lightning round once the team has that shared foundation and shared vocabulary. So it's not that 
practice should always be devoid of pressure. The mistake is that we start with the, if we start with the pressure, we never have the chance to really build the awareness in order to be more skillful come game time. Jonathan, do you have anything to add there? No, I think that's right. You know, the way I would phrase it is that in times of pressure, your brain doesn't really, just with the way it's wired, your brain doesn't really have the choice to like forge a brand new path during a time of pressure. Under a time of pressure, your brain tends to just default to what it knows best and what it's done the most. So if you put someone, hey, here's a brand new skill, let's apply the pressure, they're going to have a really hard time applying the new skill, the new behavior in that moment of pressure, because that's not how the brain works. So the purpose of slowing it down is to deeply dig that behavior, that thought process, deeply dig that groove in the mind. Once it's there, then sure, go ahead, apply the pressure, because now the brain has the ability to take that new path that was just forged through the slow, deliberate practice. And truthfully, Ravi, when working with salespeople, right, typically we're introducing them to new skills, new behaviors, new ways of doing things, which is why you need to slow down first, establish that new pattern. Then yes, if you wanted to, you could ratchet up the difficulty from there. But it's got to start with a much more slowed down version. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. I feel you on that. And I love that response because how can your mind go back to what it knows if it hasn't done the reps of a new behavior to create that familiarity? So I feel you. That's beautiful. And then tell me about this because I'm I'm really, really curious. I'm genuinely, this is from a place of like wanting to learn your point of view as well as wanting to voice my own and see what you think. So I remember my time in sales leadership and there would often be new reps who were fresh out of university or maybe they had one job previously. And what would end up happening is, is you can teach somebody methodologies and frameworks all day long. And if a human being isn't comfortable in their own skin and who they are, then it's going to always feel inauthentic to them and also transmit that energy will transmit to the prospect. So one of the things that we would focus on a lot is the human being behind the seller. And as a result, they would become more confident over time. But from your perspective, if you're training a team, okay, and let's say a percentage of them are fresh, brand new, and often not experienced in sales and they have this maybe a few stories that they're telling themselves which are preventing them from showing up in a way that's really who they are versus who they think they should be do you say okay we recommend you see a therapist first a coach who specifically works on these internal beliefs and then come to us or is there something that you engage in to get them comfortable in their own skin so they're practicing the right behaviors Jordana, what do you think? I have so many thoughts about that. So th- the first thought is that, you know, Jonathan and I are really of the belief that the most effective skills in sales are effective because they're just good human-to-human communication skills. There are frameworks, of course, for, let's say, responding to objections, but we really focus a lot of our time on helping reps to tap into and recognize their sense of curiosity, their ability to empathize, the way or, or the depth at which they they listen and use practice as a way of helping reps to, to more finely attune those very fundamental human skills. So that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. The second thing is what's so great about practice, and this is one of the, the challenges of sales training without practice, is it's so true, Ravi, like if you're handed a script or a set of discovery questions or a framework, and are expected on your own in absence of practice to take that from a book or from a LinkedIn influencer and just try it on for size the first time on your prospect, it is not going to come out very authentically you. So part of the benefits of having a safe place to make mistakes and practice is to 
to try it on for size and make some adjustments so that when you say the thing that you read in the book and realize it doesn't quite come out as you've hoped, you're not doing that on your prospect. You're doing that on your practice partner. And you can kind of find your way to a version that feels more authentically you so that you can still bring that skill or bring that behavior onto the phone with your prospects in a way that, that feels right. So I'll stop there. I know Jonathan has lots to say too. Well, I think you said most of it. I, I would definitely double tap though on, on the part about focusing on fundamental skills. Focusing on fundamental skills is kind of, I guess, the solution to that problem you presented, Robbie, of like trying to force folks who are new to sales to follow a framework. There's definitely ways that practice can help, right? Practice can be that middle ground space to make it sound more natural and kind of to adapt what they heard in the book to their own style. So practice has that value, but you can dodge that issue altogether by just focusing on core fundamental communication skills, again, of good listening and asking better questions and being more empathetic and being more curious. If you just focus on training those fundamental human skills, you won't have this issue of like a feeling inauthentic, et cetera, because you're really just training the real person, the real brain underneath. I will add too, though, Ravi, like one of the challenges I think with sales leadership or one of the opportunities, and this connects to creating safe spaces to practice, is that a lot of sales teams, they don't feel very safe to bring your authentic self. <laughs> like there are these number-driven pressure cookers, right? Where there isn't a lot of room for error, for experimentation, for risk-taking. It might be a little scary on the team to even ask questions if you don't know something. So I think that we could do well as we think about supporting people to bring their more authentic human selves into their selling to ask ourselves as enablers and as sales teams, like what level of psychological safety are we establishing in our team culture that allows our sellers to bring themselves onto this team? That to me almost feels like step one, because if that's not in place, it's pretty hard for a seller who doesn't feel confident being themselves at work to then bring their true authentic selves into their conversations with prospects. Ah, oh, totally. I mean, it's the permission piece. If I think about the quote, and I don't know who it's from, but I first heard it from Jay Shetty, and it was the idea you can't be what you can't see. So if you as a seller can't see your sales leader talking about certain things which are vulnerable and it's not being championed, you're like, hold up, I can't talk about that because that's not considered strength for lack of a better word in this team, which is quite an interesting topic. So yeah, I feel you on that. And I love that first step. And you know, Jonathan, you spoke about being a real human, right? And I think one of the problems that sellers often find is something called the pitch voice, right? So they'll get to a certain part of the conversation and suddenly be like, well, so now we've got to the price. So you have two options here, right? And all of a sudden, they sound like a used car salesperson or whoever. And I think we've all experienced that, right? The pitch voice. We've all been there, done that. We will all continue to do that, no doubt. But what is one thing a seller can do to eradicate the pitch voice, Jonathan? Two things come to mind that, that have helped me in the past. One, predictably, is practice, right? I used to work with Jordana. She was a sales coach, and I was one of her clients for a short while. And uh, we would actually practice this, and I would kind of deliver my agenda, and you know, she'd give me a rating, one to 10. How natural did that sound? And I'd go back, and I'd try it again. And eventually, I learned through her feedback how to control my voice in such a way that it sounded like the real me, or really rather how to like let go of some of the artificial controls I've been putting on my voice and just use my real voice. So there is a place for practice there, too. I think a big part of it, though, is like the mindset piece. Like if you really see yourself as a salesperson and if you really see them as just a buyer and if you really see this moment as the purpose is simply to convince them of something, it's going to be hard to not use that pitch voice. 
versus if you see yourself as a human and them as a human and you as a human who might be able to help them. And if you're leading with humble curiosity to figure out, I don't know, can we help them? Yes or no. If you really shift that mindset in your brain, it will kind of naturally come to your voice. Practice can give you a certain amount of control over those things, but truthfully, it's an adjustment that has to be made at the core first, right? And how you see yourself, which again, kind of goes back to the culture, right? If you're in a sales team culture where all the signals you're getting from all your peers and all your managers in the language that they use is like, we're salespeople, we're here to make a number, we're here to convince people, we're here to overpower objections and like strong arm people into doing what we want. It's going to be really hard to adopt that mindset of I'm a guide, I'm a server, I'm a curious human here to help. But I think start with the inner world work, but then also add in some elements of practice with a partner who can give you feedback on how your pitch voice sounds. That sounds beautiful, Jonathan, but I want to know from Jordana, is this what you taught him when you were coaching him or is this is this something he's developed over time? Well, so it's it's something that we we worked on. God, that was like two and a half years ago, I think. But another thing that I really noticed- Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. We've known each other for a while, but all through LinkedIn, actually never met in person, believe it or not. Jonathan and I. Well, hold on. So you signed a business, <laughs> but never met in person. Yeah. I love that. Bank love account that. and all, never met in person. Yeah, that, that's going to change this year. But, you know, one of the things that I notice a lot of sellers at all stages of, of like seniority is that they often forget to breathe, literally to breathe. They're holding their breath. And when you cut yourself off from your breath, you cut yourself off from your core, from yourself. And it's very easy then to turn into that yucky, pitchy used car salesman version that so many of us you know, want to run the other way from. So I can't encourage enough to maintain awareness of, of your body in your sales interactions and just make sure fundamentally that, that you are breathing. I love that. Just like a speaker, right? The concept of shallow breath versus belly breathing and also not breathing at all. So I feel you on that. That's a great call out. That's a great call out. Now, one thing which I think we'd probably say for round two that I'd love to talk to you about next time will be the concept of can you practice curiosity? Because this is something there's so many different opinions on. And we can talk about, you know, upward inflections at the end of a sentence and practicing it. But does that, that may make somebody sound curious, but are they actually inherently curious? So that's, uh, that's round two, ladies and gents. But I mean, thank you for uh, gracing me with your presence. It's been a long time coming, man. It's been a couple of months coming. So I'm glad that we got some time in the diary. But, you know, I always leave the audience with the following question because I like to figure out who the guests look up to as influential communicators for two reasons. One, for selfish reasons. And two, for also seeing if I can get them on the show. So Jonathan, who's somebody that you look up to as an influential communicator today? KD has got to be one of my favorites, Kevin Dorsey. He gets the practice thing like we do. He talks about practice a lot, but yeah. he also really understands sales culture and the importance of sales culture and how to form a good sales culture and, and really what sales leadership could be. He's one of the few people out there who really seems to have a clear vision of how sales leaders can effectively carry themselves to impact the culture of their teams, the skills of their teams, the results. So much of what he says is like just a breath of fresh air when I when I read it. So he's, he's definitely one of my uh, top folks on my list. Yeah, he's a good dude. Love his energy. He's a good dude. Jordana, what about you? Who do you look up to as an influential communicator? Yeah, KD was going to be my first pick as well. But I would say either Todd or following up behind us at a close second would be Todd Capone. Have you had a chance to talk with him, Ravi? I haven't. I've heard good things about him. You know, we've connected on LinkedIn and a few DMs, but I haven't uh, had him on the show yet. Yeah, he. I mean, he is wonderful. He is as good, kind, and human as can be. And he's the author of a book called The Transparency Sale and The Transparent Sales Leader, which is all about 
leading with authenticity, right? And creating the kind of team cultures like we spoke about that are both high performing, but also welcoming of the full spectrum of our humanity, encourage sales leaders to be honest and vulnerable with their people in service of, um, you know, creating, creating the same. So he's extraordinary and I can't recommend you're talking to him enough. Well, we've had KD on the show, probably get him on again this year. Todd, I, you know what, this uh, this reminded me, I should hit him up because I know, from our mutual friend, Samantha McKenna, that he's a weapon at negotiation. So I actually need to get him on the show to talk about that. But thank you once again for your time. But tell us where we can learn more about the practice lab and what you guys are up to. Yeah. So we, Jonathan and I talk about practice all the time on LinkedIn. So follow us on LinkedIn, but also in Q2 of this year, launching in April for any seller or sales leader who wants to try this practice thing on for size, we are launching a free membership where every month you're going to be come to, coming together and practicing live a brand new sales skill. So you can check that out at thepracticelab.co. Thepracticelab.co, ladies and gents. If you want to practice your practicing skills for free, you know, your sales skills for free. Yeah, the core fundamental selling skills the right behaviors. You know what I'm saying? Not the funky stuff, the good stuff, the stuff that really builds a human to human connection. So ladies and gents, listen, if you enjoyed today's episode, you know what you need to do, man. You need to hit us up with a review. Tell me what you enjoyed about today's episode the most. Go also hit up Jordana and Jonathan on LinkedIn, which is where they hang out all the time. And I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Peace. have a question for you my friend and that question is is what would it take to have you subscribe to the influential communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice because i tell you what my friend my big mission is to help b2b sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value. So, hey, the more the word gets out about this podcast, the more people we can gather on this mission. So if you could support me, then, hey, that would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, i got love for you, all right? I'll see you on the other side.